Good evening and welcome to the London School of Economics. My name is Ricky Burdett and I'm the head of a research group called LSE Cities, which I run with Philip Roder, who is here uh, with me. Uh, this is one of a series of lectures that um, we organize uh, at LSE Cities as part of a program called the Urban Age, and the Urban Age is a joint um, project for now running for a number of years, uh, funded and supported by Deutsche Bank. Uh, which has been exploring how cities, and particularly major complex cities around the world, uh, are successful at managing change. That's the fundamental issue. Um, even though we are at the London School of Economics, uh, I have to immediately declare my card and say, in fact, I'm an architect, or I'm a, someone who gave up architecture a long time ago to let others like Richard Rogers here do it better than me. Uh, but I've been very interested in observing uh, urban change and urban patterns and the whole emphasis of the work that we do is linking the physical side of cities to the social and political side. Therefore to have the Governor of Lagos here tonight is really a great honor to be able to discuss uh, these issues uh, in a wider context. Now I met uh, Tunde Fashola in Singapore only a very few months ago and I think we probably uh, met for 11 minutes. Uh, because that was the amount of time we had to speak uh, uh, amongst uh, uh, 30 or 40 uh, major uh, leaders from Asia and the rest of the world. And I was absolutely struck by Governor Fashola's um, comments on how it is up to cities and not necessarily up to nations, and I'm sure he will touch upon this, to deal immediately and hands-on, in a very hands-on way, with the biggest crisis facing us today, which is the climate change issue. Uh, and, of course, someone like uh, the governor is in an extraordinary position to be able to do that and to share that with us in the talk that he's giving here. Uh, from that point, from that meeting, there have been a number of exchanges uh, between the governor and uh, his colleagues and ourselves in exchanging information about uh, his city and uh, uh, the other cities we've been studying, like Mumbai, uh, like um, uh, Istanbul, like London, and New York, and I think it makes a very, very interesting comparison. And I thought what I might do just for a few seconds is just give a little bit of background before we turn to Lagos itself, of how a city like Lagos is so extraordinary in its rate of change and progress uh, that we need to really understand some of the vital statistics. Uh, just think that London, city that we're in now, more or less reached its peak around the, first, uh, the Second World War, sorry, which is when it peaked around 9 million people. Uh, so that's roughly 60 years ago. It then dropped really quite dramatically, nearly touching a low point of something like 5.5, nearly 6 million people in the 80s. And oddly now, it's back more or less 8.6 million to what it was in 1950. In 1950, Lagos was 325,000 people. That's one of our London boroughs, more or less. Uh, at the moment, it's above 10 million. Uh, and we, you will tell us, I knew, I knew you were going to already pick me up on that. But, um, <laughs> and the United Nations, not necessarily the governor and his statistics department, are projecting that the city might grow to, in 2025 to something like uh, 15 million or so, uh, possibly to become the largest city in Africa. Now, it's not just numbers, it's the pace of change, which I think is where someone who manages a city uh, really needs to uh, become involved. And the pace of change of Lagos at the moment, as far as we calculate it, is that 
one new person is either born or moves into the city, uh, sorry, 39.8 people to be precise, move into the city or are born into, that, into Lagos every hour. Right? That's nearly 40 people every hour. In Mumbai, it's a little bit more. It's 43. In London, it's 1.4. And interestingly, London and New York are actually two cities which after a period of immense decline in population are beginning to grow again through the extraordinary benefit of migration. In London itself, over the last 15 years, 95% of the people who moved into London are born not outside London, outside the UK. And of course, that's a very hot topic at the moment here. So the rate of growth of uh, Lagos has been extremely interesting. But of course, there are other issues that a city like yours has had to deal with. And probably that can be best summarized by uh, a, a measure known as the Human Development Index, which basically uh, calculates the difference between uh, or how, how well people are in terms of education, wealth, uh, and all the sort of the, the basic uh, uh, institutions of well-being in life. And here again, I think uh, Lagos is uh, extremely interesting how even though its number, it's, the number is 1.2 as an indicator, is very low compared, of course, to, uh, the, uh, to London, which is 100, so the, the difference is enormous. It's still more than twice higher than the, the state, the, than the nation. And this is a pattern which interests us enormously in cities, that always the ability of a city to actually improve people's lives and do, improve the conditions, improve the economic conditions, education, wealth, and health is possible. And that pattern is very much there and needs to be understood. Now, I know that these are some of the issues that the governor has been dealing with, not only in his short time uh, as, um, the, uh, as governor of Lagos. He was elected only in 2007 uh, and uh, will be coming up for re-election, in fact, next year. But um, it's something he's been dealing with in his short life. Uh, I think I'm allowed to say that you're um, embarrassingly young. For, uh, <laughs> born in 1963. Uh, and uh, has already been highly involved, and I'm not going to go into the details because of time, in uh, the understanding of city, a uh, very important uh, legal background, and has already made a difference uh, by instituting one or two things which I just want to touch upon. Perhaps he will then elaborate. The Guardian uh, noted very recently, the Guardian newspaper, how important it is that in your city you're actually providing anti-HIV um, drugs for women for free. This is an extraordinary statement uh, and uh, positive gesture uh, to make. This is going to move on to providing free treatment for a whole series of diseases uh, which strike many of the people in Lagos. There's an investment in infrastructure, including uh, bus transit systems, which many of us in London are rediscovering after maybe 50 years. So you'll be surprised <coughs> to see that, that we have that uh, again. And also a commitment to um, high-speed rail uh, which obviously will connect the city even better uh, nationally and internationally. I want to just um, frame the discussion by um, asking the governor, and we've discussed this already, to talk for about 40 minutes with us and then um, engage with you with some questions uh, after that, to really share with us what are, the, what are the challenges of dealing with a city which has this immense level of change. What do you do when you're in power? what you do when you're in power for a short time, uh, and how do you actually uh, transform the city so that 
you improve the lives of as many people as you can without actually destroying what we would call certainly at the LSE cities uh, the, the DNA, the quality of that city. Now, people like Richard Rogers, um, uh, Andy Altman, who's in charge of the Olympic Legacy Company, who's here with us, uh, have been working on for a number of years is how do you bring that change about in London? Uh, particularly in East London, one of the poorest areas, one of the more difficult areas, uh, without actually destroying that fine fabric and that um, economic and social balance. And I think those are issues that we can share and learn from. But could you join me in welcoming the Governor of Lagos? Good evening. You see, um, I felt very safe sitting next to you. Now I'm on my own. <laughs> um, distinguished ladies and gentlemen, uh, I'd like to say that I come here tonight with some mixed feelings. Uh, but I couldn't pass on the opportunity that uh, Richard's invitation provided for me to speak here today. This is an institution that I hold in very high esteem. And I believe that uh, one of its very early, early lecturers, um, political economist, Harold Lasky, influenced a lot of the work I did uh, in school. His Grammar of Politics is a book I still love to read. But our mixed feelings, I think that this is a largely significant Nigerian audience, I, I, I can guess. And in the last few months this year, I have received telephone calls, people expressing concern about certain uh, media representations of Lagos. Um, I've shrugged them off. And I've told those who, who watch those that uh, we will not make an apology at all today as a state for who we are, for becoming a destination that is increasingly receiving international attention. Um, and that what we do ultimately in Lagos will redefine the continent of Africa and eventually redefine our relationship with the whole world. But I'd like to say that that kind of work in the media undermines the very, very productive work that the British High Commissioner is doing in Nigeria, trying to foster business relationships with an old colony, trying to build trust. It also undermines, possibly, the kind of work that people like Ricky Bodet are doing, responding to the challenges of today, that we live in a world that has no boundaries anymore, and that the quicker we should begin to learn from ourselves, the better we will be. Of course, if you sent the same camera around London tonight, it's just about uh, 7 p.m., uh, you will see quite a number of people also, homeless in Westminster, London's prized asset, but that is not London. It's only a part of the problem that London faces today because of urbanization. And therefore, um, that's all I need to say now about, about that documentary. I, I think that 
it will find its space and, and uh, our work will make it absolutely relevant. Um, let me especially thank Ricky for, for inviting me once again. As he said, we met in Singapore very briefly. All of the communication that has made it possible for me to be here has been largely done by, by, by correspondents. And before I go into my presentation, let me also make it very clear that I do not think that Lagos will be an European city, will never be, because Europeans don't live there. <laughs> but Lagos will ultimately be a city where life is sustainable, where the expectations of those who live there and those who come to do business there can be realized in a safe and orderly manner, where everybody, irrespective of your status, will find a place. That is the city we dream of. Of course, it is important here to acknowledge that some parts of the world have made giant strides in what we think are best practice. Best practice in security, in healthcare standards, in, in public infrastructure, and those are the kind of best practices that we intend to embrace, and we are already embracing. And we think that in, in that we must recognize that our people have a culturally defined lifestyle that we cannot erase in the name of modernization. It will create an even bigger problem. Um, just before coming here, I, I went to look at the, at the antecedents of what I think is modern London. And I, and I think those antecedents lie in the fire of 1666. And I think that fire gave London an opportunity to rebuild, to replan, and to redevelop. Now, I couldn't wish a fire for Lagos, and that's what makes my challenge even much more difficult. Because after that fire, it was easy for, for the managers of London to run away from compensation and to start widening the roads, replanning the city, and reusing the land. That can happen in Lagos, and uh, we will do our level best to make sure that in spite of the absence of fire, we will rebuild a modern Lagos. But what I have to speak to is the confronting the challenges of rapid urbanization in the mega city. I'd like to say first that um, the idea of a mega city is not Lagos's idea. It's experts like, um, thank you. experts like uh, the two Richards in the room who, who evolved that concept to define cities who, in their view, had exceeded the 10 million population mark. Now, mega cities mean mega problems. Now, whether you're a small city or a mega city, as long as you have people, people who need to earn a living, who need shelter, who need to do business, the problems of human management is a problem that every city leader is facing. Whether it's in healthcare, in transportation, in education, in security. So the more people you have, the more problems you will have. And that's where I think we should draw the, 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 the differentials about mega city. And I just would open now with a slide that shows us about Lagos 
I will discuss the urban realities in Lagos. I will discuss also the challenges of those urban realities and, of course, our planning responses. Uh, as I was trying to jump in when Richard said we were about 10 million people, we are actually 18 million people. And these numbers were generated during the last national census in 2006. And we set up a state equivalent and went back to back and we enumerated 4.5 million households. And if you know Lagos and if you know Nigeria, there is no household where you will find less than four people on the average. Husband, wife, and at least two kids. <coughs> and that was the figure in 2006. So if you do the simple math and the growth rate, this is where we are. Um, about 1.2 million visitors come into the city every year, some never to leave. And, and, and I will come to deal with that and, and try to explain why the influx rate is probably higher in Lagos than in New York and, and, and London. Um, the population projections are there. Now, interesting thing also about Lagos is not just the explosion of, of the human, human traffic, but the fixed asset, which is the land, is not expanding. And that's the reality we have to deal with. Uh, is 3,577 square kilometers, is the smallest state in the whole of the Federal Republic of Nigeria. It has, it represents about 0.4% of the total national land mass. But interestingly, this is what it offers in terms of economic opportunities, all of the industrial concerns, the skilled labor force, the contribution to national GDP, Today, because of all of this, this human resource and economic resource, Lagos is the only state today in Nigeria that is generating 75% of her own internal resources. All the other states depend largely on federal grants from oil. So if Nigeria's oil were to shut down today, Lagos is the only state that will survive. That's the reality. And, um, that's the sense that probably explains the influx. And if I may quickly now deal with that, with that which, which, which arose about why. I think the controls that you have today in terms of technology, in terms of identification, in terms of the regulation of the economy, there is very little informal economy in New York and in London. And therefore, everybody has an address. You can't come in and get lost. Indeed, if you don't register, you are in trouble. You either get a driver's license or you get a national security number. And that is what we are trying to institute now as a control for Lagos. So that everybody who comes in there, I think the city and the state can remain sustainable if everybody who comes in there contributes to the commonwealth. So its attraction now is that people can come there, rags to riches story, you stay under the government radar, you make money, you don't pay taxes. But we're at the stage now where we're identifying as many people as we can, and very soon we are going to start the issuance of a residence card for all Lagosians. Uh, and, 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 and I think because this would affect some of the people in this, in this audience, I want to make it very clear. It's not Lagosians by birth. It's everybody who lives in Lagos. We want to know that you are there, and we want to know what you're doing. You owe us an obligation, as indeed we owe you. And therefore, if we don't know the numbers, we can't plan for you. I believe that 
urbanization in the rapid form that it is going is the 21st century plague. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a borderless problem. It's affecting all of the regions of the world, and therefore you can't localize it in any particular region. And every leader now has to deal with rapid urbanization. And, and the problems that, that it carries along with it, increasing energy demands, uh, a 24-hour city that never sleeps, more power, more heating, more cooling, depending on if you are in Dubai or in London. And, and therefore, um, I think we're, we're, we stand the risk of also of running into some potential contradictions because there is this increasing pursuit for renewable energy. I am seeing electric cars, but I'm asking myself, how is the electricity that would power these cars going to be generated? Is it not from biofuels? And um, urban health concerns, rapid spread of especially communicable diseases once you have one problem because of large concentration of people diseases are spread quickly the the most recent the most recent cases are some of the cholera incidents we had in Kenya incidents of cholera in Haiti and once you have urban clusters uh, this will be a problem housing has become a challenge how do you build and uh, you see large clusters, uh, people trying to cram as many people into small spaces to make use of space. Um, I saw a few days ago a documentary on CNN where uh, uh, a son and a mother made a story building out of what was just the size of a parking area for a car. And they decided that there was so little space, they had only two teacups in the house. And they were trying to maximize space. And this, this is a problem. Tokyo is facing that problem as we are. Of course, as people move to the urban centers, what you have also is that there's a desertion of the rural areas. Large farmlands are being abandoned. And there's a global food security problem. And um, uh, Lagos is not spared, or indeed Nigeria. Um, now, the reality is, of that, of, that, uh, of that problem in Lagos, that general problem in Lagos. is a large population, high interstate movement to Lagos, driven by survival and economic considerations. As I said, 1.2 million visitors every year. You have over 4,000 people cramped into a square kilometer area, which is a very high mass and high density of people. And then you have the, the, the real problem of the day, an infrastructure mismatch. Uh, nothing can ever be enough. And uh, this represents itself in those urbanization realities, in transportation problem, public health, water supply, employment, security, and environmental issues. And, and if you really want to locate the problem in your mind, um, I always use this example, and I hope that it conveys the message. Try to plan a party and not know how many guests are coming. So how much drinks do you provide and how much food do you provide? And, and, and that, if you multiply that problem, uh, you can imagine what we're dealing with here. But I believe that transportation is probably the most defining problem today in Lagos. And I use that word deliberately, the most defining, but certainly the, the problems are a little exaggerated, and, and I, will, I will try and explain the exaggeration. London, with its very, very heavy transport infrastructure, is still facing 
traffic gridlock. And this is in spite of the underground, the bus system, the surface rail, uh, the very efficient water transportation. And in spite of that, there's still congestion even in the center of the city and you have to pay congestion charge. Lagos is nowhere near there in terms of congestion and uh, it is also nowhere near London in terms of the infrastructure assets that she has to deal with transportation. But the injection of infrastructure that we, we have made in, in the last few years has shown that we can become more efficient with our transportation management possibly uh, than London. And, and I say this very, very matter-of-factly. Uh, but what we have today is a unidirectional traffic where about 6 million people are headed in one direction to the center of town. And uh, we, we are trying to deal with this because we've studied the problem and everybody is heading into the center of the state where all of the infrastructure exists. That's where you have all the markets, that's where you have all the malls, that's where you have all, all the major entertainment centers. So it's everybody go in the morning and at the end of the day the traffic is reversed. Now this is a survival movement, nothing more. Nobody is going sightseeing. <laughs> and therefore we've decided we are going to take to them what they are coming to look for. And we've designed the state in such a way that we can build eight new towns, provide the markets, provide the businesses, provide the jobs. That's our planning strategy. And then link all of these eight new towns by a multimodal transportation system, where each town is significantly self-sufficient in its markets, in its hospitals, in its malls, in its cinemas, and its entertainment facilities, and all of the daily human, human aspirations. And therefore, we restrict movement outside of, of those areas. Um, whilst the building is going on, I, I can share with you that this experience is already becoming a reality. In, the central part of Lagos, Yaba, for those who might know, um, where we committed to regenerate 33 roads, rebuild them. <clears throat> um, what we've seen, even while construction was going on, was that a major mall that had shut, shut shop about 15 years ago has reestablished itself, added three new cinemas, uh, the Domino stores, for those of you who might be familiar has come back simply because we put the infrastructure in. Um, the same thing is happening in an area, Surulere, where the old Adenin Robusa shopping, shopping complex has started work again simply because we put the infrastructure. And it tells us, therefore, that our plan will work uh, as it is. Uh, so essentially, we're redistributing what people are coming to, to one, one location to look for. Um, of course, I've alluded to that, and uh, the detail I will go into, this, this has made us commit, therefore, to an infrastructure renewal as our first strategy for poverty alleviation. We saw the infrastructure mismatch, and that was what gave Lagos its reputation that some of you have lived with on slides for many years, but that reputation is waning, and uh, unless you come into Lagos now, you will not be able to really relate the city you saw on slides to the city that you will meet. This is because the reputation was acquired out of desperation. The infrastructure was broken. For about 30 years, nothing new was built in Lagos. That's the reality. 
and immediately we started replacing the infrastructure, we saw a corresponding depreciation of the desperation. And in the last three years, we've put in 165 kilometers of new roads. Um, about 72, 77 kilometers are under construction. Those should be completed in about six months' time. And another 129 kilometers of road are going on at various stages. And in another 15 to 20 months, they should be finished. Um, as I said earlier also, the center of the state, the state politically is divided into three senatorial districts, central, east, and west. The majority of the infrastructure is located in the center, running from Ikeja, Yaba, through Victoria Island and Lagos. The east axis going towards Lekki and Ekpe just has emerging infrastructure. The west going to Badagri, the infrastructure stops after Festa. For those of you, that was around 1977. So what we're doing now is opening up simultaneously the east and the west axis. And on the east axis, we're expanding the road, a 49-kilometer toll road. And on the west axis, an expansion of the 60-kilometer 60, 60 uh, road. It's a four-lane road where we decide to expand to 10 lanes, five each way. And in the center of that is where we started the construction of the rail service, because that has the... <coughs> The, the largest immediate payback now. There's an estimated uh, population there that makes that the most viable route to start from. Um, right through the center of the state where the infrastructure was, it was also stressed. So we took one lane out of the 10 lanes that existed on Ikrodu Road and dedicated them to the bus, bus, bus service that uh, you have alluded to. And in two, two years and over, that service has already ferried 155 54 million commuters. This has led to increased journey time, saved commuters' costs, and uh, we are also freeing up uh, what I would call abandoned infrastructure and putting them to much more optimal use. And uh, there is a part of Lagos called Ushodi. It was a major road. But because there were no markets, people started trading on the streets, and inevitably the road disappeared and it became a market. <laughs> and anybody who was born 30 years ago never saw a road there. But I knew as a child that there was a road there and we set about to recover it. And immediately we did that. It was, it was, it was probably the miracle of our administration. People didn't think it was possible. Um, the, the, in that area, you could not use a phone you could not dare hold a cell phone after 5 p.m. But today, people walk the streets at 10 p.m. We've lit it up, we've cleared it, we've sorted it out. we built new markets around the areas and we've relocated all of the people we displaced. And we found out also that people came from as far as West Africa to come and trade there. As I said, we are also building rail to ensure that we have an efficient mass transit system that can carry the largest number of people in the shortest possible time. I've alluded to the, the blue line, which is being built in the middle of the, of the western axis. We've also started upgrading our water transport facilities. Uh, jetties are being completed, terminal buildings are being completed, and we're negotiating concessions with ferry operators uh, at the moment. Now, this will probably illustrate to you some of the work that is going on. Um, the Badagri Expressway is what you have 
at the top there, and that's the expansion that I alluded to towards the western axis of the state. And this is all of that construction going on. People have had to move their walls. Some buildings have had to be relocated. Some have had to be demolished. But I tell you, I was surprised that the people affected were so pleasantly engaged and involved in the relocation and demolition process. We had a town hall meeting of over a thousand people before we started, explaining what was coming and what they had to do. And uh, the feedback I got was that once we defined the 60-meter setback, it was the people actually who took out their tapes and were measuring the 60-meter setback to ensure that everybody complied. And this has made the construction seamless and easy. Of course, we've paid compensation, and it's still an ongoing process where compensation is being quantified and being paid. But that is the quality of infrastructure that is now being delivered. This is the foundations for the superstructure, the substructure, pardon me, of the rail, the pillars, and the elevated platforms uh, already uh, a work in progress. Now, this was Oshudi. Now, that was what it looked like. So you couldn't even see this road. Now, this road has returned. You will still see the yellow buses here. But because it's a work in progress, we're building a new lay-by and shelter there. We've allowed them to continue to operate until we finish and we sort them out. But this was what about 3 million commuters were denied daily use of. And therefore, they had to go to the alternative route. And that was a lot of man hours lost. And all of the properties in this neighborhood, actually the government reservation very close here, people were selling their properties and leaving. But all of that has stopped, and they see a government commitment to restoration and regeneration. Um, I also alluded to the use of an existing service. This was a 10-lane road, and we took this lane on one side, and on the other side, and put these dedicated buses there. And they've been very efficient in moving, in moving, moving commuters on a daily basis. It's still a work in, work in progress. But the interesting thing about these buses also is that those big yellow buses that some of you are familiar with, the Molwe, the people who own them are the owners of these buses. This government doesn't own these buses. What we've done is to sit down with them, share with them a new dream where transportation can be better organized, negotiate the procurement of these buses with their, with their bankers. And the truth is that in two and a half years, they fully paid for these buses, and they're ordering new buses. But we have a regulatory company that supervises the drivers, that supervises conduct, and interviews the operators of the bus. But these buses don't belong to legal state government. They belong to private people who used to run that disorganized transport service. But they've signed on to this, and this is what they're doing now. Of course, the urbanization challenge, as I said, also gives us very serious concerns about public health care. And um, what we're doing is developing mitigation and, ad and adaptation strategies to manage these challenges. Uh, we focus on preventive and primary health care. And uh, in the area of preventive focus, what we've done is to classify, uh, as is appropriate, uh, how to deal with non-communicable disease and communicable disease. Uh, hypertension and diabetes was a major, major silent killer. People were not aware of the, of the lifestyle choices and the consequences that they were making. Sedentary living um, and, and choice of diet and all of that. Uh, 
we've done a lot of advocacy and what we are getting uh, confirms that people are actually now able to make informed choices about how well they will live and how long they probably can, can work hard uh, to live for. Cancer is a major problem in Lagos, in Nigeria, as it is emerging in, in, in many parts of the world. It's, uh, it's another serious uh, cause of public concern. But we do regular cancer screening free, uh, mammography tests, uh, cervical cancer screening in all our uh, major public hospitals, tertiary public hospitals, free for, for, for citizens. Of course, there's also the blindness prevention program, which attempts to to deal with the consequences of untreated and unmanaged diabetes and hypertensions and, and the complications where citizens get free screening for, for their sight and also get uh, free eyeglasses for, for, for sight correction. Uh, in the area of communicable diseases, we, we have also uh, launched a very aggressive advocacy insisting and ensuring that uh, people understand why their children must take immunization. Um, and uh, Nigeria is one of the four remaining countries in the world where you still have white polio virus. And uh, the aggression we have deployed to, to, to vaccination for polio in the last 12 months has helped us achieve a 98% coverage certified by the World Health Organization. So there's only a 2% push, and we've committed that we will push polio out of Nigeria before the end of 2011. Um, cholera uh, is, still, is still a concern in some parts of Nigeria, but because of the high level of advocacy using the television, using the media, uh, there have been no reported cases of cholera outbreak in Lagos. Uh, people, the Ministry of Health is particularly top of the draw in all of this, advising people what to do, very basic, uh, very basic things uh, to, to do to prevent prevent uh, contact with cholera and, of course, uh, the spread of cholera. Uh, another concern for us as a consequence of urbanization is the high incidence and index of uh, infant and maternal mortality. And uh, we, we are also, as a country, a signatory to the Millennium Development Goals, which seeks to, to deal with this. Uh, what we have done in Lagos is that in the last uh, three and a half years, we've added 800 new bed spaces. Uh, and I think we should dimension this when I say 800 new bed spaces. The purpose-built facilities at the secondary level to, to deal with complications of pregnancies. And uh, they are in eight different hospitals. Uh, these hospitals are 100-bed hospitals purpose-designed redistributed to facilitate easier access. Before this intervention, there were only two major tertiary uh, facilities of that type in the whole of Lagos, serving that population in the public sector. And, and I, I, I want to emphasize this. They exist in the private sector. Uh, many of the people I see here don't have that kind of problem, but they're the vulnerable members of the public who can access secondary care when they have complications Childbirth and the two facilities that existed before this intervention existed before I was born, and they have a combined capacity of about 400 bed spaces. So what we've done in three and a half years is to double that number and uh, see and assess what the impact is before we decide 
whether we need any more intervention. But at the primary level, where we expect that if deliveries are normal, people should be able to give birth safely, we've engaged with the local governments who have the responsibility, uh, because Nigeria runs a three-tier government uh, in a federal arrangement, and the consumer responsibility for primary health belongs to the local governments. But we've engaged with them, the, about 277 primary health care centers where we've trained nurses, birth attendants, and working with them to keep those facilities running for 24 hours. And uh, this, is, this, this is making progress and we're, we're measuring and seeing the increasing uh, decline in that, in that index of uh, <coughs> infant and maternal mortality. This is just graph, graphic response. That's the model of the building. That's what it looks like inside. And there are eight of these now in Lagos. And this is a pediatric, pediatric facility for, for, for secondary and tertiary care for pediatric uh, complications. But this, this is only one of its type in, in our tertiary institution. But there are eight of these now in Lagos. <coughs> now, this map will probably illustrate what the, what the situation was. The blue area there shows the two existing facilities. And you can imagine the distances that people had to come. Pregnant women, many of them never make it. Now, the redistribution there shows the completed ones. And those that have the white background there are those where the equipment and the staff are being, are being put in place, but they've been finished. But we recruit staff and train them specially for this purpose before we flag off the hospital. And if you look, for example, at the, at the eastern axis here, for example, you will see the distance. This is a distance of about 60 kilometers to the nearest facility. Now, they now have one. So that's the, that's the impact that we have made in, in, in that area. In terms of water supply, um, as I said, mega problem for a mega state. You need more water for more people. Um, in 2007, we had an installed capacity of about 105 million gallons of water per day. It wasn't enough, but as if that wasn't bad enough, we could only produce about 40 million gallons per day because there was no power. So what we had to do first was to get that facility fully up and running. We invested in an independent power plant, a 12 megawatt power plant, and we are pumping over 85% now. And uh, by that combination and a combination of our investment in 15 micro water works over the last three years, each one of them having 2 million gallons capacity and a 5-kilometer uh, reticulation radius, we've increased water supply in Lagos by 100 million gallons in, in that period. So there's more water available, but there's still a distance yet to go. We intend to do about... 770 million gallons by 2020 using the, the population projections and that means we have to build more, more, more water supply facilities, expand the reticulation to create access uh, and also um, undertake a plan now to increase advocacy to people. There's a lot of waste of water too. How to conserve water and uh, how also to meter lost water. But uh, between now and next year, we intend to increase the area of water coverage in our budget plans for next year from 40 to 60 percent. Uh, and uh, we think very seriously looking at the plans that we have evolved. 
that we can deliver water to the 25 million Lagosians that Lagos expects by, by the year uh, 2020. Uh, we think it is possible through a combination of increased supply, uh, conservation of water loss, uh, management, and uh, private sector investment, uh, to name but a few. We have broken the state into 10 water districts and a lot of reform is going on now. We're going to privatize the whole water supply because up till, as I speak, is largely a state-funded enterprise. And therefore, uh, we, we intend by, by involving private sector to increase efficiency of the water administration process in Lagos. This is the model of the 2 million gallon per day water facility. The 15 of this currently up and running uh, in the state. Employment, of course, is also a major concern, as it is here. Uh, a lot of people I know spend hours on the net looking for a job in London. It's not different in Lagos. And um, the investments that we make in infrastructure is creating jobs. We have also directly employed almost 14,000 people into the, into the uh, public service in Lagos. The public service has now grown to about 120,000 people. Uh, as the population grows, clearly, in spite of automation, you need more hands to, to service that growing population. Um, the employment creation is in various areas, uh, waste management, uh, bus rapid transit scheme, um, and uh, a new nighttime economy. Really what is happening is that many parts of the economy that people did not pay attention to, that were, that were not in focus, have suddenly woken up. There's a lot of activity going on in the state and therefore people are finding new opportunities and new business, especially the critical, the critical side of business, the small business, the small business groups. There is also uh, what, what we call the Agric Youth Employment Scheme. We're training a thousand graduates to become vegetable and poultry farmers. Uh, this, this is our strategy also for responding to the food security challenge that we see people leaving the rural areas and coming into the city. Um, our latest, our latest um, initiative is what we call the After School Graduate Development Center. What we find also is that, tragically, there's so much to do in that economy, and it, it, it just doesn't match the general feeling where people are saying, we don't have jobs. And our studies are showing that there's simply a mismatch in the curriculum of the training and the output as against the needs of the society. Everybody is looking for a paid job on a desk, but really where the money and the jobs are is where you need to get your hands dirty. And so we are asking our graduates to look at the debt and see money there. So, uh, we're getting graduates uh, to convert where it is easy to do so. For example, there are hospitals that require nurses, and there are so many microbiologists, graduates, who don't have jobs. So those kind of people are easy to convert. We're also doing uh, an entrepreneurship eligibility training. Uh, so we, we've got people who have demonstrated these skills, going to centers to train people and develop them, help them convert help them be self-employable, and also help them find work where, where they have the skill. Um, of course, we have not been spared the 
the consequence of security challenge to, to our state. And um, three years ago, I think the best way to summarize it is that three years ago, my first week in office, I spent visiting either the mortuary, the home of a robbery victim, or the accident and emergency center of our hospitals every night in the first week that I took office. That was how bad it was. But I haven't done that now in two and a half years. What we simply did was to invest in security, partner with the private sector. We, the, the police in Nigeria is controlled by the federal government. I can't employ the police. I can't control them. They give me what they can afford. But we realized that the police were ill-equipped, they were ill-prepared, and they were poorly remunerated. So there was so much self-policing. And what we did was to call as many of the people in the state together that we could do this together as a team rather than everybody trying to create his own police. And we put the fund through legislation into a trust and we used it to equip the police. And uh, what this has done is that in, in the last three years, violent crime has come down by the stats that we have by over 79%. Indeed, Lagos is the safest state now in the whole country and many parts of the sub-region of Africa. You will see this also in an increasing nighttime economy. Um, three years ago, the city shut down at 7 p.m. You could not get fuel to buy in any station. Nobody would open. No pharmacy would open. But they are running till midnight, and, and the plan is that with electrification, it will become a full 24-hour economy. And therefore, as that happens also, we expect to see people working two jobs and simultaneously also address the, the, the problem of, of unemployment. Um, there are safety issues also where you have large agglomeration of people. No matter how hard you try, there will be accidents when you converge people together. Uh, the, our our level, level of response and, and safety is not always the same. So we've set up a safety commission. I, I did that by executive order from my office whilst we await legislative backing. There's a law now in the House of Assembly to give life to that commission. But what that commission is doing is training first responders in the state, making people aware of safety precautions that they never adverted their minds to at work, wearing goggles, wearing hard hats, wearing gloves, and all of that. So they go from local government to local government now, doing presentations like this, showing bad practice, and also showing good practice and encouraging people to take them on board. We also have developed what I think is a, is a commendable capacity now to respond to emergencies. We're building relief camps because we recognize that no matter how hard you plan, uh, you will have emergencies. We had a flood emergency recently, and we were able to relocate over 1,000 victims. And not only did we relocate them, there were some pregnant women there. I got feedback to, uh, before I left Lagos that uh, we had three new babies there safely delivered in the camp because there's healthcare there, there's a hospital running there, there's a football field for recreation, and we've also moved teachers into makeshift schools in the camp so that the education of the student is, uh, the children is not disrupted while we, we plan their, their relocation. And uh, in three years also, let me, let me make this point. Um, we have not lost anybody to fire. And, and we do have fires during, during the hot season, during the dry season. And before then, 
We had fire engines, but there were no fire hydrants in the way the state was planned. So when they got to fire, fire, fire venues, what you had was that they would run out of water and the building would burn all the way down. Now, our solution was a midway course, and it has helped. What we simply did was to buy water tankers so that every time the fire engine is going out, it's going out with two more water tankers. And it has helped us. We've saved a lot of properties. We've saved, we've saved lives. And as I said, we haven't lost any, any life to a fire accident in the last three years. The, this, this is what uh, our policemen now look like. Those are the armored personnel carriers. They, they used to patrol at, at strategic points. We've acquired two helicopters that gives us power now to do aerial surveillance. These are patrol vehicles. And this is the command center where we're monitoring the state using cameras, monitoring the city. We're still installing. It's still a distance to go. But this is what has emerged in, in, in three years. Of course, waste management is also a challenge where you have, where you have people, you have waste. But also, as I said, we are teaching our young people now to look into the debt because there's a lot of money here. And uh, uh, we've intervened directly, bought compactor trucks. Before now, refuse used to be carted in open trucks. Those trucks have disappeared. We've intervened because we think that we must lead from the front. And therefore, government bought 140 trucks to show what models would be acceptable in the city. Uh, private people have invested in this. Today, we, we have over 750 trucks owned by private people meeting the standards and uh, helping us manage, manage uh, waste disposal. This is creating jobs down the line. We have people sweeping the street. We've employed over 10,000 people doing that on a daily basis and, and earning a decent living. Of course, that has helped in reducing crime levels in the state because people have found a legitimate choice to earn, to earn an income. Of course, our green and, uh, green and uh, beautification program is, is also a major, major uh, economic in initiative. There were no jobs here when we came in 2000 and 2007, but we've employed thousands of people in this area. We've created also a very large footprint of green area in a state that used to be called a concrete jungle. And this is what our, our state is beginning to look like. And demonstratively, that look there, this is what it looks like now. That was where it started uh, three years ago. And this is being replicated across, across the state, increasing the, the, the green footprint of the state. This is a landfill site. And it used to look like that. And this is what it looks like. But the job is not finished, as you can see right behind there. But this, this is the current, current illustration of it. That's where it's all started from. <laughs> Now, I, I think it's important here to really describe what we are talking about. Lagos is not just a city. It is a state. It's a city-state. So it's quite different talking about London. And it grew from a very small trading post about 300 years ago, trading with the Portuguese into what it has become. Its current challenges are symptoms of unimplemented or failed plans. And that convinces us that if there is a plan that is rigorously implemented, Lagos can and will work. Uh, 
like every coastal state, it's, it's a major harbor, it's a major port for exchange of goods and services, so it continues to attract people. There are unplanned settlements in the state, some call it slums, some call it blighted areas, and uh, we've identified about 40 of them. The residents of these of this settlements are vulnerable and they are largely immigrants. Uh, but we have resolved not to abandon them. We have decided to integrate them in a phase process into the large developmental plan that we, we, we have inaugurated. We've passed a new town planning and urban development law uh, and we are setting up very strict controls for its employment, uh, implementation and enforcement. Uh, Eleven of these slums are benefiting from our own unilateral policies and also a program we are running with the World Bank. One of those settlements, the one in Okobaba, where sawdust is regularly being produced uh, because of heavy logging and, and, and wood milling, we signed an MOU to relocate them. But relocating them is only the first part of the problem. There's very massive environmental degradation there that we really have to renew and clean out the water. And we, we are consulting with and looking for expertise here in what this will take, really, before we start the process. 30 other of those areas have been incorporated into the eight new towns being planned in the state. Master plans are being developed now as I speak and we are also working on developing a regional plan. We are planning new housing design so as to prevent stratification. The models we have chosen are a combination of four floors with one, two and three bedrooms. We believe that this will help integrate the community better so that the, the children of the very vulnerable can also live with the children of the upper middle class and share best practice and ideas as society evolves. The same thing is happening in our new markets and malls. We are not building grand malls alone. We are integrating the vulnerable, the weak and the poor who want just small spaces to also trade along with the mega fashion houses in, in, in a sustainable manner. We think this rubs off and helps people buy on to a new attitude and, and, and a new way of life because you would never legislate that. It has to be experienced and accepted as a way of life to aspire to. This, this is characteristic of one of the, the, the markets and malls under construction. This, if you look there, those are the small spaces and those are the shops at the, at the top there. This is Oluwole Market. This place used to be a den of forgers. You could forge anything here before we took it over. And, and this, this, this is symptomatic now of what we're doing with those blighted areas where vulnerable people stay. And all of this is being financed uh, with mortgage conditions for the people who want to, who want to so that they can pay at their convenience uh, for the acquisition of these spaces. As I said, we, we, we have become much more vigorous and uh, non-compromising with our town planning and <clears throat> because we saw that the problem was as a result of failed or unimplemented plans. Excuse me. We have widened the jurisdictions of our magistrates so that they can be involved in town planning. Until then, town planning issues and offenses were high court offenses, and, and this created congestion and inefficiency. 
because of the wider jurisdiction, we built 200 new courtrooms uh, with verbatim reporting. One of the courtrooms was in the slide that I showed you. The training magistrates now preparing them to be able to enforce compliance. And uh, we've also extended the, the working week of the magistrates to include Saturdays. Um, uh, now, as, as we evolve, and as I have alluded to, you cannot legislate a new town or a new way of life for people and say, go there. You can only demonstrate it to them. And we, we have chosen to demonstrate this by three major projects, the Lekki Free Trade Zone, which is a 16,000 hectare development of uh, logistics, industry, and housing complex, showing that we can properly plan and implement. The Eco-Atlantic City project is a, is a reclamation project, really, uh, to reclaim land that was lost on the Atlantic. Uh, we've lost about three kilometers of land to the Atlantic through erosion. Uh, and the reclamation is almost complete. And this would be a new town, energy efficient, transport efficient, and traffic efficient. Because the Pinnacle Town project uh, is a partnership with some investors also. But the interesting thing about these three projects is that they are strategically located again in the three senatorial districts of town so that everybody can see and experience or live close to what a new town looks like and hope to aspire to be part of that kind of development. Uh, I'd like to conclude now and say that uh, the Nepal Cities Forum in 2004 threw us a challenge that the the sustainability of Africa's development and the struggle for it will be won or lost in Lagos. As governor, members of my team and I have taken up this challenge and we are prepared to win that battle. Distinguished ladies and gentlemen, I thank you for your attention. Governor, thank you very much for that incredibly comprehensive uh, account of the job you have and the uh, mission you set yourselves to, to deal with exactly the issues of growth that I was uh, talking about at the beginning. Uh, we now have uh, an opportunity for questions from the floor. There are one of two questions which I have time if they will let me. Uh, well, I might want to uh, ask you, given the provocative statements uh, sometimes you make, and I want to uh, maybe uh, clarify some of the things for the audience. But why don't we start with, um, let's see, oh, well, this is going to be tough. Um, well, the gentleman right at the back there. Yes. We wait for the microphone. Can you tell us who you are and be very brief, otherwise I'll stop you. Hi, my name is Peter Onyretti and um, I work for Thompson Reuters, I'm a project manager. Um, I'm a Nigerian, uh, but I obviously work here in London, uh, and I'm very interested in the projects that are going on at the moment in, um, in, in Nigeria. For example, the, uh, the Lekki Free Trade Zone and the Eco Atlantic City. I wanted to know what the progress is uh, on these projects. And also, um, the, 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 um, the difficulties that I face with the lack of power, uh, 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 Constant light and electricity, and how that's affecting the, uh, the, uh, the, the the project so far. Thank you. 
take a few. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take a few. Let's let's do uh, one question. Right here. Yes, you. So hold on. Wait for the microphone. Tell us who you are, please. Hi, my name is Nkemka Kweme. I'm a master's student here, public Keep policy on. and administration, LSE. Um, my question is: an issue that comes up in any emergency city is that of security. And I remember in 2007, I was talking to one of your opponents then, and I asked him his views on state police, and he was like, he didn't feel that was necessary. And with the increased responsibility being taken by states to push forward the development without relying on the federal government, for example, like the Lagos Sector Road, which is a federal government-owned road, what are your views on the decentralization of the state police force? And do you think there's a need for that? And if you do think there's a need for that, what do you say to those who are concerned that governors could use that as a personal security or for the personal gain? Okay, so that's a second one. Wait one moment, no, a gentleman over there in the corner. We'll have three at a time, three at a time. The, not the one behind, further back. My name is Chabu Mati. I worked for 15 years in Lagos State. And my question actually to the government. Sorry, I didn't get your name, please. My name is Chegu Martin. I worked for Lagos State for over 15 years. Um, while during the deliberation, you mentioned often in the last three years, in the last three years, I keep wondering what happened in the other years when Lagos was developing. I really want to know. And when it comes to the issue of the PHC, what the PHC that will work for 24 hours at the primary centers, but constantly there is no light in Lagos lack of electricity. How can we get this done? Because basically to move Lagos forward, we need to have energy. Thank you. Okay, let's take these three and then we'll come to the others. I'm remembering, trying to remember how many of you put up your hands. <coughs> okay, I think I'll start with the last, last uh, um, question. Uh, the story of Lagos today wasn't built in three years. It's a story of 11 years. I am accounting only for the role that I have played and for which I take responsibility. I was involved in that building process under Governor Tinumbu. I shared the ideals and the plans. Some of the plans you see coming to fruition today were conceived during his administration. But I can only account for when I sat on the chair now, in terms of the primary health care centers, I think the important thing first is to move from non-functional primary health care centers to functional primary health care centers, and then to see how long we can keep them functional. What we're doing in some, in, some, in some areas, for example, is to power them with generators. But really, it would be unfair to impose that as a rule for all of the local governments. Their resources are different, their assets are different. But in places where they're viable, especially in the urban centers, uh, it's easier for them to, to, to run power for, for 24 hours. But I think the important thing also is, is to understand that it's not power alone. What the primary healthcare centers deal with largely are non-complicated births. And, and very basic immunization. Immunization will take place during the day from morning till evening. Non-complicated baths, if you have light, if you have a, a trained bath attendant, 
uh, if you have a sterile environment, you should be able to deliver uh, a baby. If there are complications, of course, as I said, we've prepared to deal with complications and move them to secondary facilities. But uh, for us, it's a quantum but gradual leap uh, in that sense, and, and we are many miles away from our destination. Um, the question of state police, I, I think that in a federal arrangement where states can run their own universities, where states can run their own governments, they can run their own courts, uh, it's, it's, uh, it, it begs the question really to, to even argue whether we should have, we should have uh, a state police. I think that uh, if a state has a legislative house as I do to make laws, uh, it must have the, the, the enforcement capacity to enforce its laws. So that's the problem of the impure federation that we have. And um, yes, specifically therefore to, to your question, there is a need for it. Not only, not only uh, for, for, the, for the law enforcement side, but as I argued during my campaign, it gives me the opportunity also to take young graduates off the streets. If I can employ policemen, I can interest them in a career in a properly and efficiently managed police force. And, and this, this, this for me is also a strategy to deal with the problem of unemployment. It, it would leave me the choice to decide how many police officers I want in my state and what standard of professionalism I aspire to, to deliver to them. As for the argument that it would be, it would be used for, by governors, first of all, that argument uh, runs into many fallacies. Uh, it's based on the very false premise that there will be 36 irresponsible governors, of which I am not. Uh, and, and, and secondly, um, the question of security is too important to predicate an argument against it on an if. It premises on the assumption that it may or may not happen. But the reality is that there is insecurity in many parts of the country. And it is also clear that governors are responding to supporting police officers that do not belong to them. And because of that insecurity, clearly life is threatened and life has and will be lost. Now, I would not subscribe to that kind of argument of what may happen that prevents us from dealing with what is happening. It's a very faulty argument, it's a very faulty premise, and I, I do not subscribe to it. And, and, and therefore, really, uh, who is, is, there is no part of the world, there is no part of the world that the police has never been abused. So it's a matter of leadership responsibility. Um, the Lecky project, uh, the Lecky project is a free trade zone uh, that is uh, uh, like a jurisdiction offshore where people can come and do business without necessarily being subject to the domestic law in terms of taxation, duties, and all of that, but also still subject to some regime of supervision by the local customs and immigration uh, in some way. Now, the, what, has, what has been completed now is the main administrative building 
where all of the registration of businesses can take place, where the customs are already deployed and operating, and the, a few roads have been completed, and uh, construction work is still going on to provide the infrastructure to start, uh, to start production in the area. We have very firm commitments now for the development of two refineries, one fertilizer firm uh, and one uh, flour mill has already also taken land. So it's, it's, it's our responsibility now to raise to provide the infrastructure that enables them to start production. Uh, there are other, other interests within, within the zone. Indeed, I think on Tuesday next week I will be opening uh, a plant and uh, machinery exhibition there that will run for a week. These are strategies now to begin to bring people to come and feel and see what is going on there instead of selling it to them uh, in slides and uh, on the net. Um, the Eco-Atlantic project we've reclaimed. Now, I don't want to give you the wrong figure, but I will try and dimension it descriptively. We've reclaimed by the width, um, by the width, two kilometers to the width, and we are going to reclaim seven kilometers of land by the width. Into the sea, we've reclaimed 1.8 kilometers of land. Uh, I, I don't have the uh, the computed acreage of the head, and I don't want to mislead you. I do apologize that I'm unable to provide those details, but a very very vast track of real estate has been reclaimed. Just on the notion of the reshaping of the city, for example, with this large um, project or area that you're talking about, uh, one of the things that, of course, has struck those of us who've been looking at other cities around the world, such as Johannesburg, is how the landscape of the city, the shape, literally, of the environment, the new housing, the new communities, have sometimes uh, become designed in response to fear or in response to changing social circumstances. And if I were to perhaps choose one environment, I would say that the landscapes of the fringes of Johannesburg are becoming landscapes which are in gated communities surrounded yeah. walls. You, could you tell us what is happening in Lagos and how the shape of the city is uh, being affected and are you concerned? Is it something that uh, can be controlled? Uh, or is it not an issue? I it is an issue, particularly um, we've tried to address it. I, I'm not sure that it can be controlled. I think that it can be, it can be managed rather than controlled. And, and I use those words deliberately. What we saw, for example, was that in, in many parts of the state, at Ross R, you had traffic gridlock because communities had been gated off. Uh, the, it's the response to violent crimes and robberies at night. So, seeming uh, connecting roads were gated off, but that wasn't the original plan. And therefore, commuters were restricted in the choice of routes they, 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 could, they could access to get home. What we did was to convene a town hall meeting like this and explain to the residents that the traffic gridlock they were complaining about, that they had a role to play. And we demonstrated to them graphically with maps how one street locked off, prevented access, 
and, and translated to built up traffic that could be freed. Now, the management that we, because they used to shut off as early as 7 p.m., immediately got dark. So we said, look, the police is now more efficient. And they agreed. Can you keep it open till midnight? And, and many, many, many people have complied. And that has helped traffic ease, especially in the very bad areas. But I still get text messages. I still get emails, people complaining, oh, you told them. Uh, and we, we really also must demilitarize ourselves. We spent too many years under the military, and people expect me to literally come and force it down and open the gate. I say, look, you told them not to open the gate. They, they have not listened and get your people to come. And so now, um, the choice here was to make that choice, but we, we, we were real and, and, and um, um, very careful with the, with the enforcement capacity that was at our disposal. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we felt that engagement communication and advocacy would do the trick. It has worked, but it, it's not where we want to be, and, and I am concerned. But I think that with increasing uh, security successes, uh, for want of a better word, uh, those concerns about gated, gated communities will, will, will better out. And they, again, those new towns will represent the images of what is possible. And, and, and once people begin to see and feel it, uh, one expects that going forward, the incidents will reduce, although you may still have to come and deal with that. Let's take a few more questions. So one at the front here, then the, the, the so gentleman. Okay, one here. Wait, 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 let me stand up. There's a lady there. A, okay, the lady in the second row, next. And, um, no, it's good, you, you. yes. Yeah, and then I'll come here for the third law. I will. I will. Oh, sorry. sorry. <laughs> Coming. Yes, okay. You're too popular. Okay, first question, second, and third. Philip uh, Rhoda from LSE Cities. Uh, Governor, I was quite intrigued by your success story about formalizing what you called the disorganized transit. And I wonder, I mean, there are lots of cities that face uh, this particular issue. And I wonder what would be the US single most relevant piece of advice for cities, even Johannesburg, that allowed you to come to a table, negotiate with informal uh, both drivers and owners of these minicabs to actually become a partner in a new transit system with 10,000 new jobs in the BRT, which ultimately I would probably assume still reduced the overall jobs in that particular sector, given that you are increasing the size of the fleet. And added to that, is there a city you have learned from that you felt has been useful for the case story or for the story of Lagos? Thank you. Um, hello, Governor Fashler. My name is Rolake. Um I was just wondering, one of the things that's always concerned me about Nigeria is the uneven pattern of growth and development across the country. And even at a time when Lagos was quite considered the infrastructural nightmare it was, it still had a huge pull factor. So my concern is, you know, in two decades' time with sort of rapid infrastructural development in Lagos and improvements, if other states of Nigeria are not growing at the same rate and developing as rapidly, isn't there a danger that actually the, the vision of a mega city eventually then becomes much more of a nightmare because Lagos already has a huge pull factor? And we know that failure is an orphan, success has many fathers. 
and we're just going to get much more, many more internal migrants from across Nigeria looking for more opportunities as we see a Atlantic spring up, as we see the Lake Free Trade Zone spring up. So my question is, to what extent is the federal government learning from this, and to what extent are you trying to engage your counterparts elsewhere to try and prevent what will eventually, could be in the future, yet another imbalance? Let me start with the last question. I'd I, I like to apologize for letting that slip. That really, it's not my nature to talk about work in progress. I talk about what we have done. Really, I just let that slip. Because the, <laughs> the exercise still requires some processes to, to start. So, but um, we've, we've, um, we've started pilot testings, and, and therefore, uh, it's like clearing the cobwebs and eliminating snagging, really. Uh, and until we're sure that it's a, because each one should have a unique ID number and, and all of that. So we're, we're really eliminating snagging. And until we're sure, I couldn't say we'll start on this day. But uh, we're, t we're testing and we're, we're, we're getting feedback. Also, uh, that has led us, if, 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 if it's of any help, to design now uh, a standard uh, data collection format for the whole state. Because hitherto, you had data collected in different formats, either surname first, uh, middle name last, and all of that. So the same person will show up on your data in three different forms. So one of the things we've had to do first is to standardize now across board in all the public institutions now that this is the format, irrespective of whatever data you want to collect. It must be surname first, middle name, and that. So and that we, we're feeding that back in to see what other new snags will show up. So you can't issue that kind of card until you are really well done, done and dusted to ensure otherwise you create a bigger problem than you sought to solve. But the cards are ready, all of the, the software is in place. This is work that has taken some time to, to, to build. Again, quickly, back in, in some way, it's related to the, uh, the informal transit uh, organization, transport organization, the question posed by Philip. Uh, you see, Governance, the administration of a state, is a continuum. 
And, and as I said earlier, some of these things started in the last administration. Uh, some of them started in this administration. The transport plan, for example, the burden I had was to implement it, but its conception was not mine. But I was part of the team that negotiated some of the agreements when I was chief of staff in the last administration. But um, the, the idea here was that we didn't abandon the project uh, and implementing it came with a lot of difficulties. In fact, I was threatened not to dare to start it. They said they were going to kill me. So, and all sorts of things happened, but I said, well, if, if this was it, I, I couldn't jump away from an idea that I was persuaded by uh, because I was part of the process. Uh, in terms of sharing knowledge about this kind of, this kind of thing from other cities, yes, the Lagos BLT was modeled on the, uh, uh, I think it was a Brazilian model city, Cultiva. That, that we use, but uh, they didn't have fully segregated lanes. But what we did was to have fully segregated lanes. And um, in terms of uh, uh, advice, really, to other cities seeking to do this, a few, a few uh, African cities have come to Lagos to come and see uh, what we're doing. A few Nigerian states have also come to see. But as I, as I alluded to in my, in my opening remarks, that Lagos will not be an European city and therefore you must, you must find how to adapt best practice in a manner that works for you and suits your people. Uh, we, we, we realized that if we didn't have fully segregated lanes, it was going to be difficult to, to implement that system. Even with the fully segregated lanes, some military officers have dared to use the lane when they were not supposed to have had to physically stop to arrest some of them. And it's still it's still big battle getting full compliance, but compliance has been significant and that's why it's been it's been such a success. Um, the question about uneven pattern of growth as by roller care and what other other cities and states are doing. I, I, I think that whether or not other other states uh, s uh, get going or not, Lagos will have the the uh, magnetic effect it continues to have for for people uh, because of 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 the economic opportunities that that it represents for for many people within Nigeria and outside of Nigeria. Um, what we are doing. Uh, is to plan Lagos to be able to sustainably accommodate 40 million people. Uh, after that, well, uh, really, <laughs> where is she? So it will be your problem to continue from where we live off. So, <laughs> but let me quickly say that other states, other states uh, have uh, admirably been challenged by what we have done. Uh, there's a lot of uh, new developments in the air from states like River State, Akwa Ibom, Ogun, uh, uh, Plateau State. Uh, everybody is doing something. You probably don't get the, f the full impact of what is going on because uh, the, the bulk of the media is in Lagos. And, and uh, sadly, I don't think we travel enough within our country. Right, we have three more questions, two from the top and then the gentleman there. 
with the uh, light green, the green shirt. So one okay. in the middle, you next, and then three. Good evening, Governor Fashola. My name is Delia Adeshina. I work in um, housing with East Living Housing Association. And the idea of such a large population in Lagos, I'm just interested to know what has been the state's investment in affordable housing in terms of money, I mean, numbers of units, or households and population in. Thank you. Thank you. Over there, second one. Hi. Hi, Governor. Um, my name is Aditya. I'm a third year student here at SC. And uh, I worked in an energy company in Lagos last year. And um, I learned that only for a few hours a day would firms and private people get uh, electricity into their house. So my question to you is, um, are you going to concentrate on the grid as a way of getting energy to people? Or do you think subsidizing private firms and um, letting the private sector do it is a better method? Thank you. And gentlemen? Yes, good evening, uh, Governor Fashola. My name is Omoyele Shawore of Sahara Reporters. So uh, I just have, we're going to consolidate our questions into one for you. And it's first to correct you that for the last three years there has not been any fire. So there was a fire incident in Lagos that killed 30 people. Accident this year. You know that. So correct that. Secondly, uh, we just want to ask very quickly, Lagos has a big tax issue. And your tax is collected by a private firm known as Alpha Belta, owned by the former governor. How much do you pay him on a monthly basis? That's no, please, 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 please. Secondly, it has caused a fight between you and him, which is threatening your good works as far as people know. You know, why are you afraid of being investigated for corruption as you have been fighting in the courts, right? And finally, Lagosians are complaining about deodorization of the rich people's end and ghettoization of the poor people, that you don't actually construct roads in places like Ayobo, whereas you have a beautiful toll gate road in the rich area. How do you intend to dedorize the ghettos? Those are my three questions. Thank you. Okay. So I leave it up to you to which yeah. you want to answer first? Yeah. Right. yeah. Thank you. Um, I'd like to deal with the question of electricity first because I, 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 th I thank you for bringing it up again because uh, somebody actually asked it and I, I seem to have missed it. The electricity regime <coughs> in Nigeria is regulated by the Nigerian constitution in, in the way that it allows the states only to generate electricity. That's, that's where we can contribute. But unfortunately, you cannot distribute electricity. And therefore, it's not worth your while as a state government to generate electricity, put it on the grid, and don't get the benefit for it. And many people who want to do electricity in any event want to sell bulk power. And we've had an experience which has not been too pleasant. Yes, it's brought electricity, but we're paying uh, money that we need not pay. But there is sign of an electricity reform that will ultimately allow states to have some nominal participation with private sector to take over uh, distribution companies. But in the short term, what we have done um, is that we are relieving the greed of our own immediate demands as a public agency. Uh, 
That's why I alluded to the 12 megawatt power for water. Now, our demands for electricity for water from public electricity is off, and we expect that this will be fed back to the citizens because we are now uh, self-sufficient. We are doing something similar, uh, which would, I think in December or January, we should be able to switch on uh, to power the courts, hospitals, uh, um, and a few other government buildings on the island. We've completed a power audit for the sec government secretariat in, in, in Ikeja, which is quite a big campus of people. And we think that if we take that off also the, the, the grid, it will help bring relief while all of this is going on. Of course, we are expecting that as uh, there's a national integrated power project that is hopeful to deliver uh, some thousands of megawatts of power into the national grid uh, in, the, in the foreseeable future. And we anticipate that some of the problems that that will bring on is uh, problems of distribution. We have invested in distribution equipment uh, in partnership again with the private sector. We now manufacture transformers locally in Lagos and we expect to commence uh, manufacture of meters to help us measure the energy and build for them also locally in Lagos because we think there will be a, a, a drag of time in importing transformers and meters. People will simply not understand why they can't connect immediately if that power comes into the system. But I, I think that's, that's as best as I can summarize the, the question. Now to um, Mr. Deshida, about affordable, about number of houses, how much we have invested, really I think that is not the, the appropriate, appropriate question. Uh, and I say that with respect because I believe that um, clearly over the years government at state and federal level has tried to build what they called houses for the poor. But the, the reality is that the poor never get to own those houses. That's, that's the truth. Uh, they, they often end up being tenants in houses that were designed for them. So it's no longer about the number of houses. It's whether or not people can actually access the houses. And uh, my, my campaign on housing was predicated simply on one issue, which was to make housing accessible to people. And it's not necessarily the concept of how much the houses cost. It's whether people can have access by paying gradually. As I often said, you cannot expect people to buy homes as if they were going to buy a pair of boxers. A, a house is something you pay for over a significantly long period of your life, especially when you're working. And what has caused the problem in the Nigerian economy is that there is no long-term funding available to support mortgages, and that's what we are finding a solution to. Um, and, and this time, I'm going to be very careful, and I'm not going to say more than is necessary to answer your question by saying that I think that we have found a solution. And when we are done, we will announce that plan. But essentially, it is to allow people own houses uh, by paying not more than 30%, by ensuring also that they do not spend more than uh, is it 25% or 30% of their income on monthly repayments and that they get a minimum of at least 15 years within which to pay for their homes. That's what we're working on. We are trying to bridge that gap between the funding because with all the best intentions, government cannot build all the houses that its people need. 
and our responsibility is to put in place a system that allows and encourages private sector also to participate in housing supply in a way that, it, that makes them confident that if they invest, they can take out their money. And, and, and I think that I, I do hope that I have answered your, your question. Now, um, I, I want to start first uh, the gentleman who uh, yes, I, if, if you are correct, the fire, the pipeline explosion. That happened in Ogo State, not in Lagos. <laughs> it happened in Ogo State, not in Lagos. It, 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 was, it, was, it was an unfortunate incident. It was an unfortunate incident, but there's a boundary there. The, the long bridge separates Lagos and, and Ogun. It was an unfortunate incident, no doubt, and we wish that we could have done more uh, in spite of where it was to, to save lives. But that, that's, that's, that's the case. Um, in terms of um, the toll, toll road, the reality of the toll road is that First of all, at the time that road was commenced, Lekki area is the area that I've alluded to in my presentation. It is one of the fastest growing real estate corridors in Nigeria today. And that road was served by, that estate was served by just that road uh, in a way that created genuine fear that that corridor may end up like the Western Corridor, Badagri, where the growth outpaced the road and nobody wanted to live there. And these concerns came at the time in the last administration where there wasn't enough money to commit to that, to that project. We went and leveraged on the, on, the, on the goodwill of government at the time and got a private company to come and finance a toll road. It was the first toll road of its type ever undertaken in sub-Saharan Africa except South Africa. And I think a lot of credit must go to government rather than condemnation because it was the biggest endorsement of investment, uh, investment attraction of our state. Um, and really, the, the, the question here is, what is so overly offensive about a tool? How much really is a tool? Because I watch people before the development of, of, of this route started. I watched people robbed and killed in long hours of traffic. Was it the life that was more important? For us, every life, every life entrusted to our care uh, uh, is sacred and we will do everything that we think is practicable and reasonable. And really, um, there are very few serious states in the world today that are not tolling roads. It's, it's the challenge of urbanization and the mismatch that we have between the rate at which people are settling in our state makes it impossible and impracticable for us to put the infrastructure quickly and sufficiently in place, especially when government has many other social obligations. I think what we should be concerned about here is that as a government, we should ensure that private sector makes the investment, makes decent profit, and does not profiteer. I think that is where you should hold us to account. And really, whether it's roads, whether it is hospitals, whether it is schools, 
it has always been the combination of public and private sector that delivers it in, an econ in every economy. Some people never use public transport. They use private transport. And this is the balance we must get all the time. And if, if we use the same private sector funding to support security and save lives, why should it earn us condemnation for using it to build roads? I think we must take the credit for sustaining even the credibility in that challenging environment that people feel safe to come and invest their money. Uh, as for Ayobo, well, let me say that Ayobo is only a small part of the larger Alimosho. And what we have designed for Alimosho is a program similar to do what we have done in Yaba and in Apapa and in Ajegule. We are building 11 roads and 4 bridges. That's the design for Alimosho. Now, Alimosho area is one of the biggest and far-flung areas of Lagos, densely populated. But I don't think that there is any road that is less than 2 or 3 kilometers in Alimosho. Their roads run for as long as 6-7 kilometers. So, in the more uh, metropolitan area of Lagos that many of us are familiar with, what it costs to build one road in Alimosho, we do about four roads. Excuse me. We do about four roads in Yaba or Suleri. That is the size of their roads. But as I speak, I think we have completed about five or six of the, of the roads in Alimosho. The uh, um, uh, Fani, Man City, the um, Association Avenue, um, and uh, the Ayetoro uh, Ikpaja Road is under construction. That should be finished. There is a plan to do this, and as, as long as people come and pick, you haven't done my road. You haven't done it. It affects our planning because we believe that roads are supposed to connect people, and everybody wants a road to come into his home or his street as quickly as possible. And we will not implement our plan in that way, because that was not the way it was conceived. We take it as a plus. People are asking us to come and do it. They haven't asked us to leave, which means that we are doing something right. No. Now, the, 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 there is a question that I, I need to deal with, because it's a very important question. <laughs> the, the question of alpha beta, and I think that, I think that um, this audience deserves to know what the situation is. I operated in the private sector for about 15 years before I joined government, and I knew what it took to pay money into Lagos State Government quarters, coffers. Um, you could actually run a government account without being in government. And all you needed to do was to collude with somebody in a bank, and they would open a bank account in the name of the government, and only you and I will be running it. And therefore, government did not get all of its revenues. There were forged receipts. This was the service that this company offered and provided to Lagos. And that is why revenues of Lagos have grown from 600 million naira per month in 1999 to over 14 billion naira today. A lot of loopholes have been, have been plugged. Now, if this company... <laughs> if this company is offering service, I think it is only fair to, to, to remunerate it. Now, the jury will be out what is fair remuneration. And, and those will be the issues. As far as I am aware, this company is not owned by Governor Tinumbu. And unless you have proof... 
You see, because I think we should be very careful. We should be very careful in making very, very uh, unverified statements. And this goes to the allegations that you have alluded to about me corrupting myself. I challenge anybody who has evidence that I have corrupted myself to bring the evidence. I will not run a government on the pages of newspapers. I have a job to do here. I make no apologies for how I do my job. <laughs> but, but I do my job with every belief that I will be called to account, and I am ready to account. But if anybody has any evidence of allegation of wrongdoing, it is easy to make allegations. That is the burden we bear in public office, true and false. But if there are allegations, I will respond to them. Let them bring the allegations, I mean, the, the evidence. It is easy to allege that Mr. Fashola has stolen. I have asked people how those who, who, who suggest, for example, that governors take money from Abuja and share it, to even ask themselves how money is transferred at the monthly federal allocations in Abuja. Nobody gets a check. That is the reality. At the meeting that holds in Abuja every month with the 36 finance, finance commissioners, all they do is give each state its account of the revenues that came into the country, the sharing formula, and what your balances are, so that you can falsify and search out that account if you disagree. Once you all sign off, the central bank transfers the monies into each state's accounts. Now, how can any governor lay his hands on money in a bank account <coughs> without it being traceable? As a governor, I don't sign checks. None of my commissioners sign checks. The accounting officers in the Lagos State Public Service are the, are the civil servants, the permanent secretaries. All I do is sit down and approve recommendations for expenditure to be incurred. I don't touch vouchers. Governor, can I? And the, no, I need, I need to. This, this is a big opportunity. <laughs> now, in case, in case you do not know, the Lagos State Public Service finance system is computerized. And therefore, you cannot expend money in that government without a budget head, a budgetary code. It is only when you have fed that into the computer that it generates a check with an account that has credit against which you can pay. This is the reality. And I think you should do more investigation and, and let those who read you, because I don't, let those who read you, <laughs> let those who read you know the truth. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, it's coming to 8.15, um, and I, I, I know, I can feel it, we could continue for at least um, uh, three hours, I'd say, in terms of the questions we have. But, um, and I knew at the beginning of this conversation uh, with the governor that we would be talking 360 degrees about what it means to be a, uh, a mayor or a governor of the city, and I now realize that we have heard that. Now, Governor, I have to end by asking you one question, which is you're going for a re-election next year. You've also, as I mentioned to you at the beginning, um, challenged other political leaders, other city leaders, including uh, those who represent world nations at the United Nations, to take seriously the climate change issue. Uh, because you argue, and we've seen it from this uh, uh, extraordinary case study you presented, <coughs> that some of the solutions start in cities. What will you do in your next four years? One thing. What will you do in your next four years, will, which will be uh, a model that other sh cities should follow in terms of the climate change agenda? 
Um, I, I will commit more, more rigorously to completing the Co-Atlantic City project because it's a, it's a major environmental, environmental uh, solution to the threat of the ocean surge uh, from the Atlantic. But if, if I may leave my thoughts with you, I, I have begun to ask myself, and I accept, I don't join those who, <clears throat> who think that climate change is fiction. I don't. It's real. Uh, but I have begun to ask myself, is it the climate that is changing, or are we coming to the end of another civilization? <laughs> That's the question I, I, I am asking myself. Because when you see many years of, 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 of life being dug up by archaeologists, uh, lost forms, and all of that, I'm, I'm asking myself really, is it the climate that is changing, or is the human civilization as we know it racing to an imminent end? Because I don't think this planet will disappear. Maybe we are the ones who will live or mutate <laughs> just in the way that dinosaurs have left. No. That's, 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 that's my, 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 my new thinking. <laughs> well, we've seen a city uh, presented to us like, like a patient on a table. Uh, 300 years and you've only been there for three years and your impact is noticeable. Uh, there are many things that one can conclude. I think the most important thing is the feeling in the room for uh, a sense that someone has had the interest and the passion and even the courage to take something like this on. And the tutelage. Yes, absolutely. I think that's clear. And the former governor. Um, I am delighted, yeah, I, I'm, Governor, I'm delighted that you've been able to um, uh, talk about all the issues in front of an informed and intelligent public. You've kept Londoners here on a Friday night till 8.25, unheard of, I have to say, which is absolutely fantastic. I'm sorry. No, no, no one has left. But the city is waiting, it's a yeah. long night. And all, 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 all I want to say is that next time I have to organize a party, yeah? and I don't know how many people are coming and how much juice to buy. I'll come to you. Thank you.